0: I'm glad you're back from lunch. It's always fun to preach just after lunch as people's food settles in and they start to nod off. Turn with me to John 15. John 15. i will be reading the text of Scripture there. I, um, I didn't actually use more than my time last session other than… I was given 55 minutes and I took 30 extra seconds, but… I intend to abuse my time significantly this session. So, John 15, we should see if I can land as quickly as I'd like to, starting in verse 1. John 15, and verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this for what it is, the Word of the Lord. That your Spirit would be at work as the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speaks to us in His Word. We pray your blessing upon me as your servant as we open and look at, consider, meditate upon what it is that Jesus said here to his apostles, what it is that John has written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the sake not only of the apostles but the church in every age. May you give us ears to hear. What the Spirit is saying to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. The influencer's stated mission is, and I quote, to encourage individuals toward an intimate, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ through a journey to spiritual intimacy. According to the influencers, abiding in Christ is at the heart of their discipleship journey. They believe Christ abides in us, And we are to abide in Christ. Further, they teach that a true disciple, hear the phrase, a true disciple is formed by being in proximity to Christ. So far, so good. With that said, my contention is that they teach a bifurcated Christian faith in which some born-again believers abide in Christ and some born-again believers do not abide in Christ. Their doctrinal statement points in this direction. On their video, they asked us to hold them to their doctrinal statement because their doctrinal statement expresses what they teach, and they're actually correct in that assertion. After speaking about being saved by Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and becoming children of God, they then say this, this salvation, you heard what this salvation is? Saved, born again, child of God. This salvation will result in righteous living and good works, if... Hear the conditional clause? This salvation will result in righteous living and good works, period. That's what it should say. (laughs) If the believer submits his life to the control of the Holy Spirit who directs the life of the believer in harmony with the Word of God. Pay attention to that if. If denotes a conditional clause. If this, then this. And now pay attention. Your salvation will result in righteousness or righteous living and good works if you submit your life to the control of the Holy Spirit. So here's a question for you. Is there a category of saved persons who are born again by the Holy Spirit, but whose faith does not result in righteous living and good works? You might reply, well, that's unfair. You're making... Too much out of this doctrinal statement, it never says that there are true believers who are born again, who do not submit themselves to the Holy Spirit, and thus, who do not live righteously and do good works. That's fine. You're reading too much in their doctrinal statement. This is the charge that I've been given. Well, I hope to demonstrate that I'm not reading that into the doctrinal statement. Rather, I'm actually merely concluding what is clear in the totality of their writings. So here's the first part of my thesis, and my thesis today has two parts in this session. First part, the fundamental premise of the influencer's journey is that your abiding in Christ is a kind of second stage in salvation that some reach when they follow the process. Now, the process does not have to be the journey. They're clear about that. It doesn't have to be the journey, but the journey is a process That God gave to Rocky Fleming that can lead you there. They're also clear about that. Now for the second part of my thesis. The fundamental premise of the influencers is false. You guys follow that? That's the easy part. It is a premise built upon an errant, mangled, and heterodox interpretation of John 15. So first, I want to demonstrate what the influencers teach regarding abiding in Christ so that you don't just hear my representation of it, but theirs. And related to that, I want to show you how they interpret John 15, because they show us how they interpret John 15. Second, I want to look at John 15 and consider what Jesus is teaching his church. So the influencers aren't getting abiding in Christ right. That's my first point. They're not. Then what does it mean to abide in Christ? What is Jesus actually teaching? That's going to be my second point. So what do the influencers teach regarding abiding in Christ? What do their books, and when I say their books, I mean both the allegories, these five stories, if you will, and the journey manual and the journey leader's guide teach about abiding in Christ. I read all of that. And directly related to this, how do they interpret John 15? And since we're talking about abiding in Christ, let me start with their book called Abide. That would be a good place to start, right? The heart of our ministry is to abide in Christ, then let's start with their book, Abide. What does it teach? It's an allegory with a lead character named Gabe, who is a godly older man. He runs through the stories, who is discipling the author, who is the founder of the influencers. Gabe is a guide for the author. That's the specific language used. He is a guide for the author. Gabe leads him to the truth about how to live a godly and fruitful life, a life where you abide in Christ. That's what Gabe is teaching. Now, the understanding taught in this allegory is that Christ abides in all believers. Do you hear that? Christ abides in all believers, but not all believers abide in Christ. The allegory teaches that the church has two kinds of saved people. You are either, one, a wild and unkept vine that does not bear fruit, or two, you're a well-maintained vine that does bear fruit. The wild and unkept vine that does not bear fruit is the Christian in whom Christ abides, but the Christian, that Christian, still does not abide in Christ. The well-maintained and fruitful vine is the Christian in whom Christ abides, and he abides in Christ. Thus, he bears much fruit. He is the man who's been disciplined, pruned, and is deepening. Now, only some of them get sifted. Um, That's the ones who will be leaders, like the director or something of the organization. Now, we all begin our journey as wild vines, all of us. You hear that? You begin your journey as a wild vine. But as we go through this process, we become well-maintained and fruitful vines. So how do we become those who abide in Christ? those who go deep with Him, those who enter into the inner chamber. Well, that comes from personal abandonment and absolute trust. That is your goal. You want to get to that point so that you can enter the inner chamber and abide in Christ. Let me tell you how the flow chart that the founders provide say it, says it happens. This is just from their language. It is a linear process. I was told by a local megachurch pastor that I'm getting it all wrong because it's an allegory. It's not a linear process. So I sent him this quote from the page. In fact, I just screenshotted the page and sent it to him. You're making an allegory into a linear process, and it's not that. Quote, it is a linear process that begins with being saved, then you're discipled, then you abide, then you're transformed. Is that clear? I think that's enormously clear. I don't know what any of it means, but it's clearly a process. So so keep that in mind. Christ abides in all the saved, but not all the saved abide in Christ. You need to reach a level of spiritual abandonment and absolute trust if you hope to enter the inner chamber and abide with Christ. Christ, to quote them, has done his part by abiding in you. Now you need to do your part by abiding in Christ. Now I want to read to you at length from the book Abide. Abide. Listen to how Gabe teaches John 15. So you know I'm not making this up. This is a quote. The undisciplined vine, like the one I showed you yesterday, is still still a vine in my vineyard. Similarly is the way a wayward or undisciplined son or daughter in God's family is still his child. A wild vine, such as you saw in my vineyard, is overgrown with old non-productive branches that have turned to old wood and can produce little meaningful fruit. Remember that old wood on a vine produces only leaves, but no grapes. There's so much entanglement of the old wood on the vine that disease comes into it, which further destroys any sparse fruit that might be produced later in the season. But it can be corrected. Gabe paused as he took a breath and continued. If I want to make the uncared-for vine productive... I will have to do some major cutting and training to prepare it for pruning. Remember that I prune the branches on the trellis for the benefit of bearing more fruit. By the way, this metaphor I'm reading from comes from pages 59 through 61 of Abide. So there are two vines, and the vines are two kinds of believers, two kinds of saved people, those who abide and produce fruit, those who do not abide and do not produce fruit. Later in the same book, we read this as Gabe asks the author to explain. So Gabe then speaks to the author and says, what are you learning? Explain it to me. Here's what the author says. I see that Jesus is telling me he has a plan for my life. This plan begins by joining with him so that he can abide in me. This is what it means to receive Jesus into my heart. At that point, I am saved and he begins to abide in me. He does his part in the abiding relationship. At that point, I am made holy and secured for salvation. You guys following that? Here's the point you're at. Jesus is abiding in you. You're holy and secured for salvation. You've received him in your heart. But there is more. Sounds like a, like a television commercial. Wait, there's more. Okay, are you ready? There's more beyond that point, and this is what I didn't understand. He wants to make me into a man after his own heart. Now, I I just want to stop right here. You're saved. He's come into your heart. You're holy. You're secured for salvation, but you were not yet a man after his own heart? Somebody needs to go back and read Ezekiel 36 and talk about the heart of stone being taken and being given a heart of flesh. That's what it means to be born again. That's what Jesus is riffing on in John 3. Well, we'll we'll keep going. He wants me to become more like him, and it is his work for the rest of my life to reform me after his own character and values. Okay, God doesn't have values, but that's just a technical thing, right? He's not like, I like this more than this. You understand? It's just truth, morality, but we'll keep going. His characteristics, called the fruit of the Spirit, slowly become mine when I abide in him. His Spirit takes over, and it becomes more of him and less of me. It is a surrender of my old life to be made into a new man. So you have to surrender your old life to be made into a new man, which is after, subsequent to your salvation. Mark already dealt with that. I'll keep going. I continued. I see the illustration Jesus gave in John 15 to be both his plan and the process for making me into this man. I know I was invited into a relationship with our living God, and I go there to him through his word. But his word is only a map and not a destination. For that reason, we must understand there is more to be learned on the relational level with him. This is when we move toward the second part of abiding. He is already abiding in me, but I must now journey forward to do my part and abide in him. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. There are two critical components in our abiding relationship with him— He does his part, but we must surrender ourselves to him to do our part. I want to remain in this intimacy with him. That is my daily walk, and that is what abiding means to me. Page 100 through 103 in Abide. So the fruitfulness only comes when we have surrendered our lives to Christ. God has done his part by abiding in us. And now we do our part by abiding in Christ, then we bear fruit. Now, this is Reformation Day weekend, if you will, Tuesday, October 31st, being Reformation Day, and this actually sounds an awful lot like the Franciscan, Gabriel Beale, whom Luther challenged. Now, I won't say the phrase in Latin, but here's what they taught. Here's what Beale taught that Luther took on. To the one who does what is in him, God denies not grace. Or maybe the Dominican priests that the reformers took on. The Dominican priests, you know Rome is not as monolithic as it looks. There are orders, right, and they have disagreements. Dominican priests, they also took on. They believed that God would give grace to people through the sacraments, provided we do our part. However, this is probably most like Keswick, spelled K-E-S-W-I-C-K sounds like Keswick, but it's pronounced Keswick. It's most like Keswick doctrine of the late 1800s. There's still a Keswick conference. I've actually preached at it in England. I preached at it in Scotland, um, one of the offshoots of it, but that still exists, but now it's changed dramatically. But the Keswick conference that started in the mid to late 1800s um, and the doctrine that came out of it taught a kind of higher life Christianity. B.B. Warfield, The line of Princeton, I took this on in his works. You can read his critique of higher life Christianity if you'd like. But here's essentially the Keswick doctrine. If you could just surrender, come to full surrender, I surrender all. There are songs from Keswick that we still sing. Fanny Crosby's famous Keswick hymn writer, and if you go pay attention to her songs, you'll be a little bit concerned by what they have to say. But they're popular hymns in the church. It's, It's not just new songs that are sometimes doctrinally bad you know there were people who wrote bad doctrine in the past too and even put it to music. It's not just a local, you know, like a new thing that we do. If you could just surrender, then God's power would be activated in your life. If you do not surrender, then you are hindering the work of God. That's why the phrase of Kezek is, let go and let God. You have to get out of his way so he can do something. God is able but only if you allow him to be. That, that's a puny God. That is a puny God. Further, the notion of Christians who do not abide and do not bear fruit, but who are saved nonetheless, sounds an awful lot like the easy believism or carnal Christianity doctrine of the 1970s through the 1990s, doesn't it? that doctrine where you could have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. Some of you are old enough to remember this being popular. In order to make that second step, you need to place Jesus on the throne in your life. Do you remember that? You young people, you just dodged that bullet altogether. Praise the Lord. And they taught that some saved Christians never do that. Some saved Christians never put Christ on the throne in their life. Now, I want you to understand how the founder of the influencers believes this process you need to understand that he believes this process is downloaded from God. That's how important he says. Here's what he says about his process that's downloaded from God, how important it is. Page 105 of Abide. I am concerned that the church, capital C, he means they're the universal church. I'm concerned that the church does not understand these principles. I, I want you to consider that for a minute. The whole universal church does not understand these basic principles of the Christian faith. That it, We don't understand John 15 until this guy downloaded the process from God. We didn't understand John 15. That is a breathtakingly arrogant statement. I don't know what the whole church universal understands or doesn't understand. I barely know what all the people in my own church understand. I certainly don't know what the people in this church understand. In summary, for the influencers, John 15 is teaching a kind of process by which we arrive at a deeper and more intimate abiding in Christ, one that requires, listen, that we stop limiting God. Yes, they teach explicitly over and over again in a number of places that we can limit God's ability to work. Friends, any God that we can limit is a God utterly unworthy of our worship. He certainly is not the God of all grace. That's not a God about whom we can ever say, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who can be His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Rather, that's the God to whom we say, from, from you and through you and to you are some things. But there are also some things that are from me. I suppose when we get to heaven, we thank God and then we stop and say, it's time for you to thank me. I didn't limit your ability anymore. I allowed you to work in my life. Friends, you know your hearts. If God was waiting for you to allow him to work in your life, you would be damned. The influencers teach that when we fail to surrender fully to God, then we are in the way of the process and we fail to produce the fruit of the Spirit. There's a kind of two-level Christianity an unfruitful connection to Christ wherein he abides in us but we do not abide in him and then there's a fruitful union with Christ wherein we also abide in him. Now I've offered I've been offered an objection to my reading of the book abide. You didn't see the emails which some of us pastors participated in for the last couple weeks with another pastor in town but he was clear that it's an allegory that we're misrepresenting it and that we are not understanding it. In fact, he said to me that if I only knew how to read the literary genre of allegory, then I would not make these complaints. Now, mind you, he said that after admitting he hadn't read it. Listen, this is the kind of smokescreen we always hear from false teachers. You just misunderstand me. The allegory is easy to follow. In fact, it's insultingly stupid in its literary quality. I'm I'm going to be honest with you. Like, you read it, and it is insulting that adults are being given this to read in my mind. Further, I encourage you to read the sections in the Journey Manual. There is a manual that you walk through, and there are lessons in that manual that cover the book Abide. And so if you don't understand the allegory. There's a manual that tells you how you should understand the allegory. I've read them, and I'm not misunderstanding the allegory. How I've applied it is exactly what they say in the manual. You go buy it and read it and see if I'm telling you the truth. They teach didactically in the manual what I am saying that the allegory teaches. It's clear. That leads to my second point or our second Question. What is Jesus teaching his church in John 15? What is Jesus teaching his church in John 15? What does Jesus mean when he issues the command, abide in me and I in you? John 15 verse 4, look at that command. Abide in me and I in you. What does he mean when he issues that command? That is an imperative, abide in me and I in you well, let's look at that together. To do so, I want to make four brief points the remainder of our time because I want to look at what Jesus is teaching in John 15 and say, is it close to what you just heard that they're teaching? So the first point, there is one true vine. Did you hear that? There is one true vine who is Christ, who is Christ. Look at John 15:1. I am the true vine. Is that confusing to anybody? I am the true vine. Now, there's not two vines, and you might be one of them or the other one of them. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Look down at verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. So, just right off the cuff. There aren't two vines, one wild and untamed and unfruitful, and the other fruitful and well maintained. That doesn't exist. We are the branches. There's two kinds of branches we'll deal with. That's true in John 15. There's one true vine. Jesus Christ. Christ is the one true vine. We're not the vine. Now I want to consider two contexts here so we understand what Jesus is teaching. Because if you don't put John 15 in the context of this whole flow of John then you're going to miss some of what he's saying. First, this is the last night of Christ's life before he'll be crucified. That that context is important for us to keep in mind. He's talking to his disciples just before his crucifixion. He's preparing his disciples for what is to come. He has announced the inauguration of the new covenant at the Lord's Supper, at the Passover meal. He has told the disciples that he's going away, and they've wondered how they can know the way to follow him there. I'm going away. How do we follow you there? And he told them, he is the way. You know the way to where I'm going. I'm the way. Further, he comforted them with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You you understand, I'm going away. We're your disciples. That's frightening. What do we do? How do we follow you? He's going to comfort them and he's going to tell them about the Holy Spirit. So look at John 14 and verse 16. He has just said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Look what he goes on to say. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another comforter um, in the King James, another paraclete, advocate, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, menno, it's, it's a form of that verb, I remain or I continue. There's a form of that here. He remains or abides, same word that you're going to see in John 15, with you and will be in you. Another uh that's the accusative form of this noun. Another paraclete. Another, it's alas in Greek, which is another of the same kind. Another of the same kind of helper or comforter. The King James uses comforter, but they don't mean it like, you know, a blanket that you lay on yourself to feel better therapeutically. What they mean by comforter is cum forte, comes with strength to strengthen you. So another comforter or advocate or helper is going to come another of the same kind now john also refers to jesus did you know john also refers to jesus as the paracleton the paracleton he's the advocate the comforter first john 2 1 just listen my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate a paracleton with the father jesus christ the righteous He is our advocate. So Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our paraclete. He is our advocate. When we sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. When Christ is crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended to glory, he has left us another advocate. Why? Because we'll be tempted to despair in the absence of Christ, won't we? That's why Jesus tells them not to let their hearts be troubled because he knows they will face much opposition from the world and from the flesh and from the devil. And so they need another paraclete. They will need a helper, a comforter, another advocate who will remind them of Christ, who will bring to their remembrance all that Christ has taught them. They need another advocate to keep them, to preserve them, for they have seen, they have seen that very night that one of their own, Judas Iscariot, did not remain with Christ. Friends, you have to understand the context of these passages. Jesus just just served the Lord's Supper to the twelve apostles and washed their feet, and one of them, someone who followed him for over three years, who was close to him, who kept the treasury, who they saw preach the gospel and do miracles and cast out demons... That one just committed apostasy. And you've got to wonder if the other 11 apostles aren't a little rattled by that situation. You know they are because they say what? When he says, one of you going to betray me? Is it me? It won't be me. I will go to my death for you. And then Jesus says, you're going to deny me before the, cruister, before the rooster crows three times. So they're rattled. How do we follow you there? You're going away. What do we do? And he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's going to remain with you. Further, Jesus knows that they are right on the precipice of denying him, aren't they? And they're going to be overwhelmed by the guilt of that denial. Overwhelmed by it. So Christ tells them they have another advocate, one who dwells with them. The Holy Spirit. We need Him. We need Him. It is only because the Holy Spirit has given us new birth in Christ, granted us union with Christ through faith, and is abiding with us and in us that we are saved, justified, adopted as sons, and are being sanctified. He is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Christ is our advocate at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the advocate in our hearts. So that when we are overwhelmed by the guilt of our sin, deeply troubled, troubled by the distress of this present darkness, and tempted to despair, the Holy Spirit is our advocate who abides in us. He sings the glorious good news of the grace of God in our hearts. So that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what do we do when we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit And then here comes the explanation of what that looks like, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. See, when the Holy Spirit fills me and tells me of the grace of God in Christ, I burst forth in song. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him. Pardon me. So we cannot rip this text in John 15 away from what Jesus has just been teaching about the Holy Spirit, abiding in the disciples and reminding them of Christ and all he said as they face much difficulty after his departure. That is our first context. Now our second context. second context of John 15 is this. I'll give you the broader Old Testament context of this. Israel is God's vine in Isaiah 5 and Jeremiah 2. Israel is prosecuted by the prophets. You guys understand how the prophets work? This is not all they do, so please don't limit it to this. They also announce God's grace in a kind way. But one of the roles the prophets play is they take God's law from the Pentateuch, And they take Israel's history from Samuel, Kings, etc. And they hold the two up against each other. And they say, listen, you violated God's law here. You violated God's law here. You violated God's law here. Like a prosecuting attorney. They even call for the witnesses. Isaiah 1 starts off that way. Calls for the witnesses of heaven and earth to witness to Israel's violation of the law again and again and again. And to Israel's coming exile for her violation of the law. And then he comes in later with the book of comfort and says, God will restore you. But listen... Israel's prosecuted by the prophets for being a wild, unkept, and unfruitful vine. She's cast into exile for her sin, and she awaits her restoration, and now Jesus appears on the scene as the Messiah and says, I am the true vine. And they hear, my father is the vine dresser. In other words, the father promised and sent his son the Son who is the gift of the Father, the Messiah of Israel, the servant of the Lord, the firstborn Son of God, the Son of David, and the offspring of Abraham. He is the serpent-crushing seed of the woman for whom Israel has waited. He is telling his disciples, I am everything Adam and Israel and you failed to be. I am the one promised by the Father. I am God's faithful Son. I am the second Adam. I'm the bread from heaven who satisfies your spiritual hunger. I am the fountain of life whom everyone who thirsts comes to drink. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. And my Father is the planter of this vineyard. In other words, He's the farmer who sent me, who has kept me, who sent the Holy Spirit to unite the branches to me. Do you want life? It's found only in Christ. It's found only there. For God so loved the world. Listen, the Father's the farmer who planted that vine. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's why Paul breaks out in doxology in Ephesians 1.3, isn't it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who in Christ has given us every spiritual or blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The Father has given the true vine, and the true vine and the Father have united, have, if you will, have, have been united, we've been united to Him by the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of faith. Faith is not our work for which we're rewarded. Faith is an instrument. Do you, do you, we say instrumentality. A lot of people don't know what instrumentality language means. I'll try to break down down. We talk about different kinds of Conditions. And uh, in, in older language we don't now all conditions seem to be of one kind But we talk about different kinds of conditions and so let me let me try to give you a bit of an example of that You have a musician who sat up here and played the piano The piano is the instrument the music is coming from the piano Right, that's the instrument through which the music comes But the effectual agent the power that makes the music is the musician And what we say when we say faith is the instrument through which we receive the grace of God is we're saying, yes, we receive it like beggars with an open hand. We receive the grace of God in Christ. But God is the effectual agent who saves us. It's not technically that you're justified by faith alone. It's technically that Christ justifies you through faith alone. And this brings us to our second observation. There are two kinds of branches. Two kinds of branches. True and false connection to Christ, if you will. True and false connection to Christ. If life is found only in the true vine, who is Christ, then one must be connected to him to be saved. And so now Jesus makes that clear. There are two kinds of branches. There are branches that have a true connection to Christ, the vine, and there are branches that have a false connection to Christ. Now, again, put this in context of The 12 apostles, one of whom just went into apostasy, false connection to Christ, the true vine. Look at John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Notice the two kind of branches. Go down to verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so so prove to be my disciples. So there are branches in Christ that remain or abide in him, and there are branches in Christ that do not remain or abide in him. The branches that abide in him have a true connection to Christ. The branches that do not abide in him, have a false connection to Christ. So let's consider our context again. What just happened on this night? Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, had departed and was plotting against Jesus. Judas did not abide in him. He did not remain. He was connected to Christ, but only externally, only visible. He was a part of, if you will, that little church of Jesus and his disciples, but It was a visible false professing attachment. He was a false professor of faith. He looked like the real deal for some time, but it turned out he never was. And so Jesus is telling us that false professors are branches that do not remain in him. You you guys know this experience in the church. You have people who are a part of your church visibly, externally, look like disciples of Christ, have every reason to believe that they probably are, until they commit apostasy. And it's deeply grieving and shocking because you don't expect that to come and you hate that it's come and, and you recognize they're being cut off and are likely to be cast into the fire if they don't repent. We can see this connect, connection clearly in our next point, the cleansing and the condemnation of the branches. The cleansing and the condemnation of the branches. Look at verse 2 again. The second half. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. We're going to talk about the cleansing first. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now look down at, right, look, continue on verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So that's the cleansing. I'll come back to that. The condemnation of the false branches. Look at verse 2 again. Every branch that in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Takes away. What does he do with them? Verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. I, I don't think you need much explanation as to what that means. There, is, there are branches that are not abiding in Christ that are condemned and branches that are abiding in Christ that are cleansed. Now the language is important. Verse three, when he says, already you are clean because the word that I've spoken to you, that seems like a strange thing for him to suddenly say. Keep in context again. One of the branches has just committed apostasy. You know that has to rattle the apostles to the core. And they've got to be wondering, what about me? They are wondering, what about me? And Jesus says to them, the branches that bear fruit, they remain in me, they bear fruit. And then he says, Already you are clean. He's talking to them. I prune them, they bear more fruit. Already you are clean. What's he saying? The language is important. The true branches are pruned so that they're clean and may bear fruit. But what does that mean? Hear this phrase, you are clean. John 15, 3. Humes katharoi este. Now, you're like, I don't know any Greek. What does that mean? Listen, I want you to hear it again. Humes katharoi este. You hear it? Okay, you at least know what it sounds like. Now look at John 13.10. John 13.10. In the upper room. As Jesus is caring for them, look what He says. Verse 10, Jesus said to to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That why, was why he said, not all of you are clean. And you are clean. You see that phrase? Okay, remember? Humes kithari, kithari este. You, 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 you hear that? Does it sound the same? It's Because it is. You are clean. Same exact Greek phrase. You're clean, but not all of you not all of you. There's your context. He knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. You are clean, 11 of you, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was to betray him. So he can come to them and say in John 15, 3, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. See, because you're the branches that abide in me and I in you. So already you're clean because the word that I have spoken to you There's your context. Judas was an unfruitful branch. He was not clean. He did not know the forgiveness of sins for he was always a false professor, an unbeliever. Friends, if you're false professors in Christ, then be warned you will be condemned. But saints, if you're in Christ by the Spirit and through a true and lively faith, then you are clean. You're clean. You are forgiven, declared righteous, saved, and you will remain in Him by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, and you will bear much fruit. Finally, I want to consider our fourth observation. The call to abide in the true vine. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, the call to abide in the true vine. Abide in me, and I in you. That's the command. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Friends, this is a call to a true and lively faith, a faith that endures, a faith that perseveres. This is a call to the disciples to avoid the lot of Judas, who did not remain, who committed apostasy, who proved to be a false professor, who was a weed in God's garden, if you will. This is a call to faith that gives birth to a repentant and obedient life. Look at John 15:7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, pay attention to that language. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. The person who abides in Christ is the one in whom God's words abide. Did you hear that? The person who abides in Christ abide in me. The person who does that is the one in whom God's words abide. Now, what I'm saying is this is just a description of a true believer. This is not some future stage in salvation that some may reach if they do their part and enter the inner chamber. This is a basic description of saving faith. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. I'm, I, I just made an assertion, but let me, let me prove it to you. We'll let Scripture interpret Scripture. Since the Holy Spirit wrote the book, we'll hear what the Holy Spirit has to say about this language. So look at John 5.38. John 5.38. John chapter 5. And get ready. Here we go. So John 5 and then 6 and then 8. So let's look at John chapter 5. I can't possibly deal with all the texts where this language is used. I'll just deal with a few. John 5 38, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And we'll look at verse 37 first. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. See, these religious leaders don't believe in the father and you know that because they don't believe in the son whom he sent now listen to what he says and you do not have his word abiding in you same greek phrase you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent how do you know if the word of the father is abiding in you because you believe in the one whom he sent if my words abide in you do you believe in the one whom he sent you search the scriptures talk about the old testament Because you believe that in them you might have life and it's they that speak about me. Do you believe in me? This is a call to faith. The words of God abiding in you are talking about saving faith. Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Look at chapter 6 and verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This isn't a call to cannibalism. You understand that, right? It's a call to, if you will, feeding upon Christ, finding him as your nourishment, what what feeds your soul and keeps you alive, trusting in him. I could get into a lot more than that, but we'll stop there. Verse 57, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. See, abiding in Christ is just believing Him. And being saved, chapter 8, John 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, if you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Is that clear enough? This is a call to saving faith. 1 John 4, 13 through 15, just listen, you don't have to turn there. John actually uses this uh, language of abide multiple times in the book of John, or the book of 1 John, his epistle. But listen, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Okay, so the whole question is, Christ abides in us. Do you abide in him? You want to hear the answer? By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. You ready? It's like, thank you, John. Jesus told us that, and now you're going to tell us the answer. Here you go. Because he has given us of his spirit. Now listen. And we have seen... And testify that the Father has sent His Son. This is what you do when you have the Spirit. You've seen and testify the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Clear enough? It's a call to saving faith. Not some future Christian life that you may or may not live if you just go through the process. In other words, the man who abides in Christ is the saved man, the man of true faith. He's the man whom the Holy Spirit has come upon. Why, listen, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ because the one who spoke the world into existence has spoken into our hearts. Live. And so we live. We look to Christ in faith and live. That man who professes faith for a bit, who looks like the real deal and then walks away, that man who commits apostasy, he is like Judas. He is a false professor, a branch that is cut off and thrown into the fire. That's why John can say of men like this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. They would have remained if you will they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us friends the call to abide in Christ is not a call to a second stage of Christian faith or another phase of the Christian life that belongs only to those who journey through the process that's a description of a true believer it's a call to faith in Christ John fifteen eight. John fifteen eight. look back there By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so what? Prove to be my disciples. There you go. The ones who remain are his disciples. They bear fruit because they're true believers. In other words, Jesus provides this visual example to exhort the apostles to avoid the path of Judas. He wants us to see what a real, true believer looks like. He is the one who remains. He is the one who bears fruit. Further, Jesus is encouraging the disciples in the face of difficult circumstances. He wants them to know that they are not like Judas. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. They're already clean. They are true believers. Look at John 15, 9. Notice, imagine their context and hear this word that Christ tells them. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Can you imagine a greater word from the Lord? As the Father has loved me, the eternally begotten Son, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Saints, we rest right there in the love of Christ. We abide in His love. The Father does not love you because of Jesus, the Father loves you, therefore, Jesus. Jesus having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved you even as the Father loves him. The Father loves you and gave you his Son, so remain there. Abide in his love. The Holy Spirit has been sent to shed the love of God abroad in your hearts. That does not mean to shed your love for God abroad in your hearts, but to shed God's love for you abroad in your hearts so that you might proclaim what manner of love is this that we should be called children of God? And so we are. So we are. And as those whom He's called to Himself by faith, it is our joy. It is our joy to walk worthy of that calling and keep His commandments. It is no burden to us. It is a joy. That's what it means to abide in Christ. It's not a process that we may or may not engage at some point after we're saved. Abiding in Christ is union with Him by the Spirit through saving faith. To be in Christ by the Holy Spirit and through faith is all our hope and stay, isn't it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He, then, is all my hope and stay. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the kindness you've shown us in your Son, the grace that we know in him, the privilege that it is to be his disciples in whom he abides and to abide in him. We know this is a gift that comes from you in your Son and by the Spirit. And for that we give thanks. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.